My friend Curtis is a Zapotec Indian. The Zapotec people are some of the indigenous people from Oaxaca, which is the southernmost state of Mexico. But Curtis was raised in North Hollywood, California, and how Curtis got to North Hollywood is part of the story for this morning. Curtis's folks, his dad was a, a firefighter and his mom was just a stay-at-home mom, used to love to travel in Mexico. And one day they were traveling in Mexico and I really don't remember the details of the story, but they met some people. And one of the people they met was a young Zapotec woman who had a baby, Curtis. And at the end of, I don't know how much time they spent to, uh, together, this woman came up and said, Hold, held her baby and handed them to the people that would become his parents and said, would you please take my child and would you raise him? And they did. And they did it all legally. They got, he, Curtis was adopted, that was their family, but he was from Oaxaca, Mexico. And it was this connection to Mexico that became very important in his family's life because about four years later, Curtis's parents were traveling down with some friends in Baja and it was getting towards the end of the day and it still wasn't too late to get back to North Hollywood, but they got lost. And so it's getting dark. They don't have a whole lot of gas. The nearest gas station is probably in Ensenada if you've been down there and they don't know where they are. And all of a sudden, Sharla had like a vision, except that it was something she heard. Out in the middle of nowhere on this dirt road, she heard children laughing. And then she turned to look towards where she heard the laughter coming from. And it was just desert, you know, scrub brush, whatever they have in the desert. And all of a sudden, it changed from the scrub that was there to fields of wheat that were waving in the wind. There was so much wheat there. Now, before you think that this is, you know, really weird and out there, these people are Lutherans, you know, so they are not known for emotionalism or anything like that. So, I mean, if a Lutheran gets a vision, it's gotta be a vision. So she has this vision of children laughing and wheat that's ready to be harvested. And they were like, what does this mean? And so they went home, they got home, and they began to pray about this thing. And they got together with their small group and they fasted about this thing. And they decided that God was calling them to maybe start an orphanage down in this area of Baja, California. And so they prayed, they fasted, they talked to some people, and it was entirely overwhelming. And as she sought some counsel from some woman that she really appreciated, this woman said to her, if God gives you a vision, Trust him to equip you to fulfill it. God uses very ordinary people to do an extraordinary work because they're dependent on him. And so she took that to heart. And within a week, they had raised enough money to buy the piece of property that she got the vision on. And I'll tell you more about that story later. But since that time, that uh, vision has gone from an orphanage there to three different homes for children who family can't take care of them or who have been abandoned on the streets, an education program in the Baja Peninsula, a home for teens in the Tijuana area, and outreach ministries with six full-time missionaries reaching the unreached people groups in the hill country of Oaxaca, all because a stay-at-home mom and a firefighter from North Hollywood heard the call of God on their lives. God uses very ordinary people to do an extraordinary work because they're dependent on him. And that brings us 
back to Mary. We're going to be reading Luke 1, verses 46 through 55 today. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So, Mary. What do we know about Mary? So Mary's a young girl, probably 13, 14 years old, because that's marrying age at that time. She comes from a small town way out in the country. Nazareth, it, Nazareth is just a village, maybe 500 people, roughly 80 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem, so not the boondocks. So they're certainly not rich, but I doubt that they were destitute either. Joseph, her fiancé, was a craftsman. He was a carpenter, so there was a source of income. In other words, she was probably just a fairly typical girl for that time and place. Nothing too much out of the ordinary about Mary. And Mary probably had fairly typical expectations about a fairly typical and fairly average life ahead of her. That's what we know about Mary. But what do we know about this song? It's called the Magnificat. It's just Latin for the word magnify. It's one of three canticles or songs from the Gospel of Luke in response to the birth of Jesus. But the Magnificat is pretty revolutionary if you listen carefully to some of the things in there. The entitled people won't get preferential treatment anymore. The rulers will be dethroned. The common people will be lifted up. Fish Food Bank is going to start sending their clients to eat at Anthony's and Bricks and the Greenhouse. The billionaires get their jets taken away, and they'll be riding the Kitsap Airporter to fly in row 26 in a middle seat. What? I mean, it's this huge disconnect. Well, about this passage, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, The Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about collapsing thrones and humbled lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. These are the tones of the women prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in Mary's mouth. So Mary is now speaking as a prophet about what the birth of the Messiah is going to bring about. What in the world happened? How is this kind of stuff coming out of ordinary Mary's mouth? Well, when she had the encounter with the angel, it showed her that God saw something more in Mary, something more that she could do, something more that she could be, some way that God could use her for his plans and purposes that she never would have been able to guess for herself or to see for herself. God's calling Mary through the angel was a gift for her to become everything 
that God had designed her to be. And Mary believed that it could happen. And that's when change happens. If God gives you a vision, trust him to equip you to fulfill it. God uses very ordinary people to do an extraordinary work because they're dependent on him. So Mary proclaiming, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, is a long way from last week. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary's transformed by this vision that God has for her. And Mary decides that she's going to live into the role that God has for her in his kingdom. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Here you see the transformation begun. He's been mindful. Mary might be invisible to a lot of people, but God knows she exists. I was talking to somebody last week, and he said to me, you and I have the same sense of humor. I hope you don't mind it when I tease you. And I was like, not at all. I've learned a long time ago that you're only really in trouble when people ignore you. Mary probably spent a lot of her time being ignored, but not by God. God noticed her. God sees her. She might not be anything special in the eyes of people around her, but God was aware that she existed, and God had a bigger plan for her life. Her perspective was changed. She was redefined by the call that God had on her life. She was able to see more than just her own life and her own circumstances. She begins to see how God is at work in the world and how he's calling her to be a part of that. And so she moves from being afraid to proclaiming how blessed she is. From thinking, what could I possibly contribute to the cause to God is at work within me. And having a changed perspective can't be overstated. Max Dupree, one of my leadership guru heroes, said that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And Mary, by the grace and the call of God, redefined her reality. She wasn't just some nameless, faceless person from a cultural backwater. She was a prophet of God. She was part of God's plan and purpose. She wasn't downtrodden or forgotten. She was blessed. And, and why would all generations call her blessed? Primarily because she got to be used by God. I mean, the privilege of Mary is to be able to carry Jesus. Oddly, we all have the same privilege. Not in quite the same way, though. And in response to all of this, Mary's chief response was to worship. My spirit glorifies the Lord and my soul rejoices in God my Savior. Mary discovers that there's this power in worship to connect us to the power of God. Worship is clarifying. Worship helps us to see things the way they really are. God is God, and our stuff, our problems, our challenges, they get ranked below God being God. God is bigger than those things. Worship helps us to clarify what our life really looks like. Worship also helps us to focus. All of the other stuff goes by the wayside when we worship. We pray together every Sunday morning in the green room before the worship services. And often 
One of the prayers that I have for you guys when you come to church is that you'll be able to take all of the things that are on your minds, all the things that you struggled with this week, and that those would all fall away so that you would be able to focus solely on the presence of God with you. Worship also helps us to experience the presence of God when we might otherwise not be able to sense it. So this section is all about how, God, how Mary has been changed by God working in her life. The next section, verses 51 through 53, is about what God has done in the world. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This is really an extraordinary passage because it's talking about how the kingdom of God has come and it's turning everything else on its head. The emphasis in the kingdom of God is not where you expect it to be. It's not where our culture puts it. The blessed people are not the powerful people or the beautiful people or the significant people or the wealthy people. People who need help and don't know where it will come from. People who can't see any hope on the horizon. The broken, the hurting, the people who are worthless in the eyes of the culture. Good news. The kingdom of God comes to them. And the kingdom of God is for them. Now, there is no stretch of the imagination where I should be pitied. But I watch, and it seems like four or five, six, I don't know, titans of industry or leaders of significant countries seem to call all of the shots in the world. And a lot of days I wonder, do I even matter in the great scheme of things? Or, you know, we've got another election coming up, and I wonder, does my vote even matter? Do, do I matter? And we're all tempted at one time or another to feel like we don't matter. But in the kingdom of God, we do. Mary's such a great example of this because even though she is not rich, she's relatively lowly, she's a culturally insignificant woman, God is doing great things in and through her. And that's a gift that comes to her when God comes to her. And that kind of gift comes to all sorts of people. It comes to old people. And I know one of the greatest challenges when we get to that point in our life is to feel like we did all of this great stuff and now nobody even cares what we think. But the gift of God, the importance in the kingdom of God, comes to people who feel like they're forgotten or that nobody cares about them or what they think anymore. It also comes to young people, people that tend to get dismissed because they don't have enough experience or how could they possibly... My daughter Rachel is a director in her company and she deals with this all the time with people who are like, can I speak to somebody else because they literally say this to her, you're too young, you can't possibly know what you're talking about. The kingdom of God comes to old people. The kingdom of God comes to young people. The kingdom of God comes to the unequipped people. The kingdom of God comes to people that you wouldn't expect the kingdom of God to come to but it comes, and that's the hope. Yes, Jesus comes to make a difference in your life and in my life as an individual, and that's so important. That helps me get up some mornings. But there's a bigger picture, and that is that God is working in the entire world. God is working to make everything right and just. And then these, this whole passage is bookended by verses 50 and 54. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation, and he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Isn't it interesting that the plan and the purpose of God is bookended 
by the mercy and the grace and the love of God. And this reminds us that that's what God is like. God's predisposition, God's posture towards us is mercy. But let me ask you this. When you hear God talked about in the news, on social media, in conversations, how do you hear him presented? Are people talking about God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, or are they talking about God's anger and God's wrath? I think one of the things we need to remember is that God is merciful. God is loving. And then verse 55 reminds us that this is good news for the whole world. The promise of Jesus is the hope of the whole world. He does this to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So the question now becomes, what about you? Where do you fit into the story? Where do I fit into the story? Because there are some similarities between the two women that I've talked about, between Sharla and between Mary. First of all, it's their very ordinariness. When we see our circumstances, when we look at our resources, when we see our opportunities, it's easy to believe that we don't have what God needs to accomplish his purposes. I mean, what could Charlotte do? She is a stay-at-home mom from North Hollywood, confronted by a baby that she didn't know she was going to take home, confronted by a need of hundreds of homeless children in Mexico. What's she supposed to do about that? Mary's 13. She's supposed to carry the Savior of the world with all of the problems that that will bring for her. It'd be so easy to believe that they didn't have enough resources, that other people would be more well-equipped. It's easy to believe we don't have what God needs. But we also use that to take ourselves off the hook. Let somebody else who's got more time or more talent or more resources be used by God. We're just as ordinary. None of us is called to be Mary. None of us is called to be Sharla or anyone else. You're called to be you. But you're called to be the you that God is calling you to be. The next thing I notice about them is that they're just going about doing their thing. They're just living their lives, but they're doing it in a very particular way. Sometimes we get paralyzed wondering what God has for us. We come to a crossroads. Maybe you're graduating from high school. Maybe you're graduating from college. Maybe you know that it's time to make a career change. Maybe something major is happening in your life. And you wonder, what does God have for me next? Well, oftentimes the answer to that question is, what's right in front of you? What, what's the opportunity that's in front of you? What's the person that you see? What's the ministry opportunity that's right in front of you? Sometimes it might be around the world, but even then, God will put it in front of you where you are. Mary didn't have to go seek for what God wanted from her. Charlotte didn't have to seek what God had for her. It was just in front of her, and they sort of found it. And that's the way it works so many times. The trick is the next point, because I said they were living their lives in a very particular way. The trick is they were open and available. They were ready to hear from God. And being open and available, it's pretty much a lifestyle choice. What do I mean by that? Well, if you buy an RV or if you buy a boat, you've made a lifestyle choice because you've got to use those things. So you've got to go camping, you've got to go boating, you've got to maintain those things. I mean, you become an RVer or you become a boater. That's a lifestyle choice that you make, and that's great. Same is true, you get a dog, a dog is a lifestyle choice. 
because there's things that you can do with a dog that are wonderful, but the dog can also hold you down in some ways. Dogs can be expensive. I mean, we would never not have a dog, but it's a lifestyle choice. We had some friends who, from a pretty young age, their son decided that he wanted to go to one of the most elite universities in the United States. And so for most of his educational career, everything was focused on getting into this elite university. The high school they picked for him, the sports that he was in, his extracurricular activities, everything was focused on getting into this elite university. It was a lifestyle choice. Everything is gonna be focused on this thing. He, he did, by the way. Following Jesus is also a lifestyle choice. We have to decide that we're gonna be open to God. We have to decide that we want to be used by God. And lots of times we do that. Sometimes we go back and forth. And sometimes we've never done it. Jesus is just something that we fit into the rest of our lives. We've made other lifestyle choices. So maybe one of the ways to think about this is, how is your openness to God? Uh, maybe you might want to think, on a daily basis, what are you looking for? Are you looking for what God might have for you that day? Or do you spend most of your time thinking, what will make me happy? What will make me comfortable? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but happiness pretty much is a byproduct. It's not a goal. Even the Constitution only guarantees that you can pursue happiness. It doesn't guarantee that you'll find it. And the Bible really doesn't say a whole lot about happiness. It pretty much prefers joy because it's more permanent. What are you looking for on a daily basis? personal comfort, pursuit of happiness, or are you actually walking around going, God, what do you have for me today? What's the opportunity that's going to come before me? Then they believed what God believed about them. Having an encounter with God, with an angel, having a vision from God about a call, it changed their view of themselves. We all get so many messages all the time about who we are, but they were able to hear what God said about them louder than anybody else. They believed what God believed about them. What about you? Do you believe what God believes about you? What do you think God's dreams are for you? Because God has dreams for what you can do and for what you can be. And sometimes we're just short-sighted. I mean, maybe you could take the opportunity to be an encourager. We are short on that. And how I know that is because when I come across people who are encouragers, they stand out from everybody else. Maybe you could just be in an encouragement to the people who, who are around you. Maybe you can be a faith booster. Maybe you can catch people doing good. Maybe you can pour into other people, remind them of their faith. Sometimes our dreams for ourselves are too small. And I'm afraid that too many of us will end up leading a really small life when we could have done something so much greater. I have a friend who is older than I am, and he realized at some point that he would have done it differently. And he also realized that it wasn't too late. And so now his focus is on how do I produce the most bang for the buck for the kingdom? He recognizes he could have done more. He's not paralyzed by it. He regrets the decisions that were made, but now he's like, I am all in. It's never too late. He's making up for lost time. Another buddy that I have, um, John Engstrom, 
Uh, we served together in the Pacific Southwest Conference on the Executive Board, just a great guy. Saw him recently at the Samarkand where my mother-in-law lives, and John just turned 90. He looks great. I was talking to him, and I said, Happy 90th birthday, John. And John is like, I really don't know why I'm still here, but I guess God still has something for me to do. There's a dude who wakes up in the morning and says, What do you have for me, God? And then they shared what God was doing. You can do this by encouraging other people that if God can work in you, God can work in them. You can challenge other people to get up off of the couch, to put the game down, to do something. But you can also just think about this in practical terms. We tend to think about you know, needing to operate globally, but how do you encourage your kids? What does God want for your kids? And how are you helping your kids to hear who they are in Christ, to hear that God has a plan and a purpose for them. If you've got kids, how are you sharing what God has done in your life with your kids? And how do we help other people be open to what God has for them? How do we help other people hear who God believes they are? Um, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be a, an obnoxious uh, person sharing, you know, your faith in inappropriate ways. It might just be at your high school, don't be one of the mean kids. Just be nice. I mean, I understand the mean kids because everybody has insecurities and it's easier to just bond together and be mean to every, everyone else. But what about if you're the one kid who reaches out to the other kids who are bullied or intentionally left out. I will never forget uh, something that happened to Allie when she was at Gig Harbor High School. Uh, she was walking across the lunchroom to go to some of her friends and she didn't see that somebody had set their lunch down and she tripped over it and she fell flat on her face. And a bunch of kids who were nearby started to laugh, which I understand human nature. I'm not saying they were bad kids. I'm not saying they were mean kids, but here's the point of the story. One of the other kids in our church, okay, it was Andrew Johnson, looked at the people who are laughing and said, hey, that's my little sister, don't laugh at her. And that completely changed the experience for Allie. What if you were that kid and you don't laugh at somebody else, but instead you build them up? Another way that you can help people see what God has for them is the way that you provide advice for people who ask for it. When, when Charla was praying about how to start this, um, this orphanage. And she was going to, to trust, trusted people, asking them what she should do. She got an encouraging piece of advice. What kind of advice do you give to people who come to you? Do you give them good advice? Do you give them godly advice? Do you give them encouraging advice? Because I think we might be surprised how often people take the advice that we give them. And you, with the advice that you give people, can either push people towards following Jesus more deeply, or you can give them an excuse to say no to God, or you can give them an excuse to be further away from God. It's a sacred uh, trust when people ask you for advice. It's a way that you can push people towards Jesus. How are you doing that? And then God confirmed his call. When the angel Gabriel gave the call to Mary, and she wondered how it would happen, he confirms it by saying, Elizabeth, your cousin's already six months along. God is already at work. I told you I'd tell you a little bit more about Charlotte's story. They raised the money to buy this piece of land in uh, Mexico, 
and she went down to Orange County to the lawyer's office where they were selling the land. And she came in with all of the money that they needed for the land, and she met with the lawyer, and the lawyer said, I'm sorry, the property is no longer for sale. She's like, what? She's like, yeah. And the attorney was like, yeah, we just sold it to another man. And Charla was absolutely devastated because she thought she had heard from God. The money came together in a week. And she walked out of the attorney's office, and there was a man sitting in the waiting room. And he could see she was absolutely distraught. And he said to her, why are you crying? And she told him the story about the vision that she had, about the orphanage that she was going to put there, about the miracle of raising the money, but that somebody else had bought the land. And the man looked at her and said, I just bought the land. But what I'm hearing is, God has the land for you, and you can't do this without my help. And so the man not only sold her the property, but he helped her in both the United States and in Mexico get legal claim to the deed, which she would not otherwise have been able to do. God confirms the call. If God gives you a vision, trust him to equip you to fulfill it. God uses very ordinary people to do an extraordinary work because they're dependent on him. Elizabeth had a baby, confirmed Mary's call. Some guy helped Charla get the land. And whatever God is calling you to do too, he'll confirm it through the people that are around you. I don't know how, but he will. So the Magnificat, Mary's story, Charla's story, reminds us in fact that God cares so much about us that Jesus enters into our day-to-day -day life and is in the process of making us into his image and changing the world. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what do you spend your days looking for? Number two, how does the gift of Jesus give you hope? And number three, how does Jesus coming to you change your view of yourself? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.